I'm Katie Oth in Washington. And I'm Rose Mutiso in London. And this is High Energy Planet, the podcast from the Energy for Growth Hub about new ideas to solve global energy poverty. On today's show, is climate philanthropy on the right track? We talk with Rachel Pritzker, founder and president of the Pritzker Innovation Fund and one of the world's leading climate and energy philanthropists. We'll ask Rachel why she's so bullish on energy philanthropy and advanced nuclear power, why climate action and poverty alleviation seem to always be pitted against each other, and why she remains optimistic about solving the climate crisis when so many people are doom and gloomers. But first, Rose gets amped up about John Kerry's climate diplomacy. Can't wait to hear what you have to say, Rose. Get ready, Katie. All that coming up on this episode of High Energy Planet. It's time for Amped Up, when we talk about what we can't stop thinking about right now in the energy and development space. And this week, Rose, you are obsessed with John Kerry. Tell me more. The the man of the moment. Seriously. (laughs) Yeah, so, you know, I've been following his stately but somewhat frantic efforts to cut climate deals with the likes of India and China and Brazil ahead of the big Earth Day summit and, of course, looking looking forward to COP26. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting. I mean, on one hand, it's good to see the U.S. is back and, and, and Kerry is the manifestation of that, you know, back taking a leadership role. But then mm-hmm. it's a little bit almost cringy. It's a little bit humbling because uh, there's quite some reticence. There's been such an erosion of trust mm-hmm. and credibility for the U.S. And actually, just today, I was reading this New York Times piece and came across an excellent quote from Rachel Kite, who is, you know, obviously a kind of key person yeah. in the energy access space. And I'm just going to read it. If you if you bear with me, I'm going to read out yeah, this of course. quote. Symmetry is theater, and it can be extremely impactful if there's a big centerpiece. That centerpiece is a U.S. plan. Symmetry. I love it. Exactly. I love it. I love it so much. And it's just kind of, I guess, for the U.S., it's like, what's your move? What are you putting on the table? And obviously, um, the U.S. can't just assume this like climate leader, climate fixer without kind of addressing this credibility issues in terms of what it can do on its home turf. And, And obviously, we are a little bit of D.C. insiders. We know that it's a tough tough call for Kerry and Biden and it's they're very constrained but I sympathize with that but I think what this made me think of is we've been going on for months and months about this gap between what rich countries ask of poor countries when it comes to climate action versus what they're doing and I felt like this was like a little bit of an analog that I'm hoping that rich countries will you know rich and high emitting countries will keep this idea in mind as we go into COP26 that poor countries in the same way that like the Indias and the Chinas and Brazils of the world are kind of a little bit reticent when the US kind of comes swinging, mm-hmm. asking them to do big things on climate and not kind of showing the receipts on their end. I think poor countries feel similarly that, you know, tired of the lectures and the posturing and wanting to see this meaningful centerpieces embedded within the symmetry and pageantry of COP26 and the discussions moving forward and in a way that reveals trust and sets the pace for the rest of us. Yeah, I mean, I think about the US trying to thread this line and and not necessarily doing it yet. I'm not sure where they're going to come out ahead of COP, but we need to simultaneously message huge ambition when it comes to Mm -hmm. our own energy transition. But at the same time, like real humility, like we are not in a position to be lecturing, but we can, I hope, play a role in in catalyzing 
ambition, just like you said, by admitting our own, <laughs> our own ground to make up. Do you have a sense of like what you'd want the centerpiece to look like? Uh, yeah, massive ambition by the U.S. I want the U.S. to be able to speak with one voice about what it commits to, not just in this decade, but in the coming decades. I think we want to see drastic cuts. We want to see some net zero commitments that other European countries are making. Uh, we want to see it all because, you know, obviously the U.S. is one of the biggest emitters, but is that possible? I'm, I have to be a realist and I, I don't know what is possible for the U.S., but this is the reality that they have to kind of, that Kerry has to kind of conduct his climate diplomacy in, is that there's always going to be this credibility hit. Well, we'll for sure be watching this very closely over the coming months. If you have an energy or development obsession, good or bad, tweet it to us at Energy for Growth, and we'll include it in an upcoming episode. Thanks, Rose. Coming up, we talk with philanthropist Rachel Pritzker about energy and climate philanthropy. Rachel Pritzker, welcome to High Energy Planet. It's so great to have you. Thank you. Great to be here. So, Rachel, you famously or infamously grew up on a goat <laughs> farm in Wisconsin. And as you put it, you are the daughter of hippie parents who proudly grew their own vegetables and cooked on a wood stove and thought that the high energy ways of the world were the cause of all of its ills. So today you're a leading voice in energy and climate philanthropy, and you advocate abundant energy sources for everyone. So, okay, how did you get from there to here? I would say the first step was realizing that I actually like cities. <laughs> <laughs> which was a big break from the way I had been raised. And then I think the next big step was after my daughter was born, I had a chance to kind of reassess and rethink how I could do the most good as a funder. Mm -hmm. And I had time to look for new ideas, things that I thought might be being overlooked in part because of the kind of stagnation of thought and ideas that I think in large part is due to partisanship. Mm -hmm. So I just went on this hunt for like original thinkers, people who were questioning underlying assumptions about how to solve big problems. And the place I found the most kind of overlooked opportunities, and of course, what I also thought was the biggest impact, were a set of ideas and solutions to better address climate change. So today, as you said, I'm still focused on how we meet both human and environmental needs, which to me mainly means that kind of interrelated challenge of climate change and energy access. I, I love this um, kind of in a weird twist. It's like uh, goats are now invading urban spaces. It's like goat <laughs> yoga and <laughs> goats on your Zoom call. So I think you are, um, you know, you can't get away from them. What's the biggest thing, kind of continuing this thread of new perspective, fresh lenses, and not getting stuck in our ideological kind of bunker? So what's the biggest thing you used to think about energy poverty that you now believe you are wrong about? When I think about my childhood, and I guess maybe the back to the land movement of the 70s more broadly, I guess I would say we were essentially aspiring to energy poverty. Like, we wouldn't have called it that. Uh -huh. But that was kind of the goal, mm -hmm. which I now 
understand was coming from a place of just incredible privilege because that was a choice we were making. We, you know, we had the option to not do that. But I guess I assumed energy poverty was good. Mm -hmm. There was like this underlying assumption that I was raised with that technological solutions to modern problems and really modernity in general were things that were bad. So I basically thought the only way to solve environmental problems was for everyone to voluntarily forego modernity. The other thing I thought that I no longer think is that we could solve energy poverty at the individual or family level through cook stoves or small amounts of household level power, rather than thinking more holistically about what it takes to like make a safe modern life which is all the things outside the home, like hospitals and industry and even towns and cities. So I now think the goal should be actually to just end poverty, yeah. <laughs> not, not to make life in poverty slightly more comfortable. And to end poverty, that requires a lot of reliable and affordable energy. That's just a great segue into something else we wanted to pick your brain on, which is that Todd Moss, who runs the Energy for Growth Hub, quotes this particular line from you a lot, which is, poverty is not my favorite solution to climate change, which can seem like such an obvious statement, but is clearly still relevant. Can you explain kind of what that particular statement means to you and why you think it's an argument that you need to keep making? I was feeling a little more bold on Twitter back when I tweeted that <laughs> than I am now. But yeah, there's a common assumption in the environmental community that to solve climate change, we basically need to prevent other countries from developing the way we have. Mm -hmm. And what that amounts to is essentially asking people and countries who use a tiny fraction of the energy we do to stay poor. I just think that's both immoral and infeasible. Poor people want out of poverty. And I think, I think rich countries have a responsibility to take on the burden of decarbonizing our own countries. And doing that will demonstrate what the portfolio of technologies will allow us to do that. And it'll also help bring down the costs of those technologies to make it yeah. easier for the middle and lower income countries to then deploy them as well. Adding to that line of thinking, so this philanthropy space is very big and very busy. And there are many people that are trying to do many kind of ostensibly good things, um, you know, everything from supporting vaccine development to ending child hunger to the guys who are, well, I should say the tech bros who are trying to stop aliens taking over our brains <laughs> in the singularity. You know, a lot of people are trying to <laughs> kind of put philanthropic dollars towards very many, I think, causes, many good. But you've spend a lot of time trying to push the philanthropic space to look at energy specifically. How have you seen others respond to this? Or are people afraid, still too afraid they're promoting high energy systems for everyone will wreck the climate or people or do people don't simply understand energy as a kind of standalone kind of vertical within the doing good space? Energy is relevant to more than just environmental concerns. It's wrapped up with everything most philanthropists actually care about, whether it's empowering women or inequality, whether it's health or, and educational outcomes, and of course, poverty. I think philanthropy mostly only thinks about energy in the climate context, though, or kind of in general as something we should use less of. Mm -hmm. 
And in the development context, using more energy is, in fact, usually important. And one of the reasons I serve on the board of the Energy for Growth Hub is because I think we need a more nuanced conversation about the role of energy. One of the sometimes overlooked ways we can disentangle the negative from the positive outcomes of using energy is through technological innovation. So people like Bill Gates have been working on this for a while, and a few others. And most climate philanthropy is still not focused there, though. Um, there's a lot of focus on grassroots organizing, which almost always means organizing to reduce energy production and consumption or to like oppose particular projects or technologies. But if we recognize reliable energy access as like a rate limiting factor for many of the other things we care about, and we recognize climate change as an, an actually global challenge, I think we'd focus more on how to make clean energy cheap rather than just how to make dirty energy more expensive. So you founded the Pritzker Innovation Fund in 2004, and part of your goal was to catalyze new thinking. And we've talked about some of that new thinking already, but were there examples of elements of your own thinking, maybe what you initially thought should be funded that have changed over the years? Over the years, we've increasingly focused more on the specific approaches and technologies that we think are being overlooked. Pretty much all of them are ones I initially opposed. So they're each an example of changing my mind. <laughs> and that's in part because it takes work to get out of herd mentality. Mm -hmm. Like I said, I really do think we need a broad set of technological pathways and policy options to make sure we're successful at addressing climate change. And so that sometimes requires going places where others hadn't thought of going mm -hmm. and spending time rethinking basic assumptions that led us all to kind of support the same handful of things. Yeah. So this would include areas like nuclear innovation, like carbon removal, and also like research into sunlight reflection as well as just broadly supporting a more nuanced approach to energy's role in the development context, which really wasn't something I had thought about much until fairly recently either. Coming up, Rachel talks about the state and future of advanced nuclear power, the place of solar and wind in a modern energy mix, and why she thinks optimism is the smart approach to climate change. One of the particular areas that you've uh, really been focused on is the development and deployment of advanced nuclear. And I'm curious kind of what particularly you're most excited about in that space right now. To be clear, I don't have any particular attachment, actually, to nuclear, you know, the technology of nuclear or frankly, any single climate solution. I do just think for all sorts of mostly historical reasons, it's like the ugly stepchild that's had zero focus for a long time. Mm -hmm. And so I think there are just a lot of opportunities, a lot of potential innovations that I think are important that we've realized in other sectors. You know, if you think about solar 10, 20, 30 years ago was prohibitively expensive and slow to scale. Yeah. 
So with the kind of focus that we've put into other technologies, I think it could be a technology that could really help us meet our climate goals. In 2015, which was, I guess, almost six years ago now, you gave a TEDx talk in which you said that while wind and solar have a place in the global energy mix, it's unlikely that these technologies will ever fully power the modern world, and almost definitely not in a time frame that matters for addressing climate change. So that, that was a, a block quote, quoting your words right back at you. So <laughs> since then, <laughs> so this is the danger of giving talks that go on the internet is that we'll just quote you <laughs> indefinitely. Since then, both solar and wind have obviously made quantum leaps in cost and scalability, and batteries are getting there, but not that far behind. So has anything happened over these last six years since you kind of uttered those words that has changed your mind? Uh, why or why not? Yeah, I mean, I would just start with the remarkable progress that solar and wind have made just reinforces in my mind the need for us to put the kind of focus and investments that we put into solar and wind in other technologies that we haven't done that yet for because it just shows that with a decade of focus and investment, you can bring down the cost of things and you can scale things. Solar and wind have definitely made a lot of progress since 2015. They're likely to play a big role in addressing climate change, but I'm still not sure why we would prematurely narrow our options. When you think about the costs not just in terms of a kilowatt, but in terms of a whole energy system mm -hmm. that can provide reliable energy when and where people use it. And you think outside of energy to all the other things we need to decarbonize. It's just a massive challenge. Every place currently has a different mix of energy resources and natural resources and is going to probably benefit from a mix, a sort of portfolio of options that will fit best in that location. So it might turn out that other forms of dispatchable power like nuclear are what help us build that like affordable, fully decarbonized energy system. And I'm setting Katie up for her last question here. You know, it almost seems that the scale of the problem is so large that people are drawn to the silver bullet. Yes. Kind of very simplistic thinking. We just want to be saved by, I mean, when I was younger, it was nuclear fusion was a thing that then we'd have flying cars and everything would be okay. <laughs> so it seems that there are no silver bullets. And so it's, it's, all, it's all lost. I don't know, Katie, why don't you take it away? <laughs> so yeah, on one side, you have people hoping for a technological silver bullet, but there's also a strain within climate activism of people calling for radical pivots away from even capitalism itself and very wary of technological solutions. And in contrast, your approach has been really to embrace optimism and to build on the success that we've made globally in part because of technological innovation. How do you sell people on that, on optimism <laughs> as, as a good approach to climate change? It is really hard, but I think it's important. I think pessimism is demotivating. And people who feel hopeless and defeated are going to have a harder time achieving great and hard things. At this point, it feels like a mental habit that can be hard to break. And I think that's especially true because there's like social pressure against acknowledging any improvements or successes in the world. Mm -hmm. So one way I do this for myself is by noticing 
whenever I can find an example of a problem we've solved, or at least some progress we've made. I think so a few examples of that are like the dramatic declines in infant and maternal deaths globally. Mm -hmm. Those are actually astounding. You don't see headlines about it, though, because a optimism is hard to sell, but b it happened like gradually over time. It wasn't like the one day it happened, people noticed. So sometimes noticing the improvements can be hard for that reason. But we've made other progress. Like we have dramatically reduced air pollution in places like the US and Europe, like just dramatically. And I think people are afraid to acknowledge that progress because they think that if we say we've gotten better at something or made progress on something that then people won't want to continue improving it. And, you know, it does require a little nuance to say, yeah, it's gotten better and we have more to do. Poverty is an example. Like, we've come a long way and there have been huge declines in extreme poverty around the world. Even in the climate context, like, there are places that have made a lot of progress in lowering their emissions. France, Sweden, the UK all have different and interesting lessons that we wouldn't notice if we weren't looking for those bright spots. And like I said, it's not, this isn't to say the work is done or that we don't need to continue working on all these things, which I think that's how people sometimes hear when any optimism creeps in. I think people hear, oh, you're saying the work is done. Well, then we don't have any work to do. So anyway, I think to sum it up, this is another example of where there are benefits to nuance. <laughs> I think that's, that's kind of the punchline. It's such a knife edge. And, you know, I think it's kind of we need the, the improv approach that yes, and mm -hmm. it's so hard. I don't know why as people we want to be motivated by kind of terror or like extreme terror, extreme everything is great and nothing yeah. in between. And it doesn't feel good as someone who used to reside in that sort of worldview and dispositional approach. It doesn't feel good. Okay, Rachel, now it's time to play a rant or rave. So this is a fun game uh, we devised for the podcast uh, where we say a word or a term and you go on a short rant or rave about it. So are you ready? Yes. All right, rant or rave, growing up on a good farm. Both, I guess. <laughs> uh, yeah, so on the rave side, I had a great childhood and I love goats. In fact, the ringtone on my phone is a goat. Oh my God, that's awesome. <laughs> so every time it goes off, people around me just laugh. And I, I love that. Um, on the rant side, I'm glad we moved to a city by the time I was a teenager. Because rural life just wasn't intellectually stimulating or culturally diverse enough for me as I got older. And also... I think it's lucky I didn't ever have to figure out a way to make a living as a goat farmer. <laughs> I don't know. I have faith. You could do it. Now is a good time. You can rent out your goats on Zoom. This is a, it's a thing that's happening now. Okay. Rant or rave? Cooking with wood. A definite rant. So this is another like example of where my thinking has diverged from my upbringing. Uh -huh. Cutting down trees is just terrible for the climate. And... It's sad to see forests destroyed for this reason, when we have other options. And then the other main reason is that inhaling wood smoke is just horrible for human health. Women and children all over the world 
suffer these health consequences while they cook or, you know, are in like a smoky living space. Plus, personally, as a California resident now, I just inhale enough wood smoke every year to, (laughs) like, I don't know how I put up with it for so long as a kid, but I'm getting enough. Thank you. (laughs) That's so interesting. Um, Just... Uh, yeah, when we think of like all of the women and children suffering from smoke, we don't think about uh, hippies on Wisconsin goat farms, but here you are. There you go. There you go. <laughs> all right. Final one. Energy efficiency as a pillar of climate action. Slight rant. Only because it's really easy to sit here in the U.S. where we do use more energy than anyone per capita. It's easy to sit here and think efficiency alone will solve climate change. But if we're thinking about this as a global problem, which I think we should, we need to put more focus on the challenge of how to actually bring more clean, cheap, reliable energy to everyone. So I think people can easily have a misplaced idea about how much efficiency can accomplish just because of where they sit. So, but to be clear, I, you know, I still do things like turn the light off in the room when I leave it. So I'm not like opposed to efficiency. All right. Well, we'd have to have this conversation at the time because, yeah, I consider myself to be a big energy efficiency booster. But obviously, I completely get where you're coming from, where it's either something that people don't think about at all or people try to like over boost. So again, um, next next podcast, next next (laughs) podcast, it's just Rose and Rachel head to head on energy efficiency. Rachel, thanks so much for being with us on High Energy Planet. Uh, We've had so much fun chatting with you. And we hope to do this again. Thanks, Rachel. Yeah, thank you. High Energy Planet is a production of the Energy for Growth Hub, an energy solutions connector matching policymakers with evidence-based pathways to a high energy future for everyone. Find out more at www.energyforgrowth.org and tweet your questions and thoughts to us at Energy for Growth. And if you liked today's episode, be sure to rate and rank the podcast and tell a friend about us. Bob Lalash is our executive producer. Gray Johnson is our senior producer. Join us next time for more High Energy Planet.